change the way it's done, do it quicker, faster, whatever it is, that's true innovation. How'd they do that? Step number one would be try it. Have you tried? What, what innovation are you talking about? What's the number one priority? What do we have to innovate first? Hi everyone, Mark here and welcome to Indifference. This is the podcast where we have conversations with people at the top of their game and try and understand what is it they do to create progress in their field. Today, I'm joined by Michael O'Sullivan. Michael is former Assistant Commissioner of the Garda Síochána, which is Ireland's National Police Force, and is currently the Director of the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre based in Portugal. Mayoc was set up in 2007 as an international agency funded by the EU to coordinate interceptions of drug trafficking into Europe. Recent reports show increases in drug use across Europe, and the latest figures show that 1 in 300 people are accessing treatments for drug addiction. We've all seen the TV programs about intercepting drug traffickers, but my conversation with Michael shines a light on what that really looks like. There's a lot to take away here about how disruption works in other spaces too, so I hope you enjoy our conversation and take a few things from it. Let's get straight in. Michael, thanks very much for joining me today. Really looking forward to our, our conversation and to hear about some of your experiences and insights on this. Yeah, you're welcome, Mark. We might just kick off and look back then and ask, ask that early question of how did you first get interested in disrupting organized crime? I suppose it goes far as far back as the early 80s. I was a young policeman working in Dublin City. And uh, 80, 81, uh, the uh, introduction of heroin and the whole crime uh, surge that followed it, and the whole challenge about dealing with it, I suppose. One minute heroin wasn't there, the next minute it was there within a couple of months. And it was uh, a huge outbreak, uh, led to a huge crime wave. It led to a new way of criminality, and the knock-on effect was it led to a new way of, of policing. Heretofore, you hadn't got heroin dealers, you hadn't got profits like that, you hadn't got criminals like that. Heretofore, it was a case of uh, guys breaking into chemists or hippies selling hash and stuff like that. There wasn't, the criminal underworld wasn't really interested in drugs. Um, but it, it, it arrived with a bang and, and they saw the profits, they being, there was one organized crime group and probably the only main organized crime group, the done organized crime group in Dublin City, who were involved in a wide range of crime. And they had contacts in the UK, and they saw the market in the UK for heroin. So they imitated that in Dublin. And the inner city of Dublin, particularly, was hit very bad. In fact, there was no heroin outside of Dublin City for many years. And the inner city of Dublin City was decimated. There were a number of reports at the time. One report compared it our head of population to a corresponding New York ghetto and, and, and the number of very young people on heroin was frightening. So uh, a group was formed. I was part of it. And we then, uh, I suppose, started to uh, work against what was then the uh, organized crime in its infancy and, and getting bigger by the week. And we worked at that in a new type of, a, I suppose, a pioneering type of way insofar as we carried out surveillance and we 
infiltrated the criminal groups and we purchased heroin from dealers and we um, built a picture of the structure of the criminal gang with a view to bringing prosecutions. It was a long-term operation, quite challenging at the time, hadn't been tried before, was sort of unheard of, and um, it worked. And, um, and, and the prosecutions followed. And it, with the prosecutions, we started to disrupt the organized crime network. People began to get sent away. We began to seize large seizures of heroin. We eventually worked our way up through the pyramids from the street dealers to learning who the middlemen were, to learning who the higher-ups were, to learning who the wholesalers were. And then when you eventually got a picture of the entire organization, the couriers, the main people, um, you then dismantled it, tried to dismantle it bit by bit. It was time-consuming, um, but but eventually, eventually worked and eventually the that group was taken down after a period of about 18 months. Um, and most of the higher echelons, if not all of them, either went on the, went on the run or were locked up. And a large number of dealers were, were arrested, a lot of money seized, a lot of drugs seized. Um, so that's, that's how it started. And that was 81 for the, yeah, most of the 80s, really, I guess. It's amazing because, like you say, it's kind of, you know, that was the start of it 30 years ago. We're all kind of kind of used to seeing these sort of organizations on TV drama series and so on, but uh, it must have been kind of shocking, I'd say, to begin to get your head around it and actually to look at uh, the different levels of it. But did you ever kind of get to the bottom of how did drugs, like say heroin, cocaine, how did that get on the criminals' radar? Because it obviously was new to them too. The group who's, who imported the heroin and started to say to it. Were, were armed robbers and um, they used to jump over the counters of banks, rob security vans, do large-scale break-ins, and they began to realize there's a far greater profit and a far less risk. And that modus operandi has followed over the last four decades. Cocaine wasn't really around in those days, and um, cocaine generates greater profits. And now you have most, if not all, criminal gangs involved in the sale and distribution of cocaine. Why? Because of the profits and less risk. It's better than trying to rob some security van. It's better than trying to a large-scale burglary and the profits. The profits are very good. And if you can get others to take the risk and you can organize yourself sufficiently, it makes a lot of money. And nowadays... And um, when you look at cocaine, cocaine has far greater profits. It has a far greater consumer base than heroin. Cocaine is estimated to be, the last figures in 2017, it was valued, at the cocaine market was valued in Europe at 9 billion. It's probably 13 billion at the moment. So everybody, any criminal organization worth their salt is involved in it. And it is the fuel that keeps organized crime taking over and has propelled them up through the ranks and up through society and it has given them lots of cash and lots of power. With the result, it has brought the scale of crime up. You have feuds, you have people being killed, you have mass massive importations into Europe, into Ireland. And so 
the game has the game has changed completely from four decades ago. The profits is the single driving force that drives everything up. So everyone's involved, and they're making a lot of money out of it. You know, looking at the work that you're doing now with the Maritime Analysis and Operations Centre based out of Portugal, when, when you're going about tackling some of these problems, particularly the, the importation into Europe, how do you know what to focus on? The, the principle is the same. It's good police work. It's focusing on targets. It's focusing on the people. It's focusing on the structure. It's focusing on the networks. It's focusing on really who your targets are. And um, the targets change over the years because they get put away, they get arrested, they get killed, and new targets come along. So it's about it's about being focused on your target and keeping that focus and not not being dislodged from it or distracted from it. And it is about trying to undermine the whole organization, whether through the interception of importations, whether it be to the seizure of cash or just bringing pressure from a law enforcement perspective on them. It is chiseling away to find those weak links. And it, it's, um, it's, it's a bit of a, an attrition method. It's a bit of a war of attrition, really. It's, it's keeping going at the same group. Sometimes you're success, sometimes you don't. Um, but it's constantly being focused and bringing that pressure to bear. And it's a, it's a massive operation of you know, a lot of different countries on this side of Europe, getting yeah. together, getting behind this initiative. So uh, did it set up in 2007? So Yeah, the, yeah, the Maritime Operations Centre, Narcotics, as it's officially titled, was set up in 2007. The reason for it was uh, as a fusion centre to bring together uh, seven European countries and the American Drugs Enforcement Agency with a view to um, combining the efforts of the European countries in establishing a front line against drug importation into Europe. So that, that, that's basically the, the principle behind it, combining resources, combining intelligence, combining that focus, making it a European problem rather than a piecemeal problem. Before 2007, you had the UK doing their own thing and the French doing their own thing and the Irish doing their own thing, but you were going at the same groups basically. So as the groups got more organized, law enforcement had to get more organized. And it was generally recognized that this is a global problem. It's a European problem and a global problem. And it is about the combined effort of European agencies uh, working closely together. So they set up the center. So it would be a one-stop shop to act as a front line to prevent drugs coming to Europe, both from the Atlantic and through the Mediterranean. Michael, so far in your work there, you know, how do you know if your approach is working? Well, you know from the effect you're having on the criminal organization. You know from the seizures you get. Last year, um, if you look at seizures last year, Mayor seized 2.3 billion euros um, in drugs. So if you look at, if you convert that to cash, if you convert that to hard currency, the effort and energy that it takes for organized crime to get that from Colombia, across the Atlantic, and to Europe. When you take that out, you know you've scored a major success, and then you know the effect that has. Somebody has to pay that bill. 
It's not covered by insurance. The Colombians are paid. The Europeans are left with one arm as long as the other without cash because they have invested their money in it. When you see them then changing routes, you know that you're having an effect on them. And then when you try to intercept them in those routes and you see them changing methods, you know that it is causing them huge disruption and it, it is serving to dismantle their empire and the way they operate. In the last 18 months, they have changed a whole new way of doing business. They uh, tried to enter Europe in a submarine last year in an effort to avoid detection. Um, it sailed for 23 days, carrying three tons with three individuals from Brazil uh, to northern Spain, to Galicia, where it was intercepted. So that just gives you a, an idea. A sub like that could cost a half a million to make. And such as the profits, they would just, after they offloaded the drugs, sink it and it would be destroyed. So they can take that, those sort of losses. They can take, that's the cost of transport. Yeah. But, but what the losses they can't take are the seizures of the tons of drugs. That's, that's the whole principle. It's known as upmarket disruption. For Europe to seize two or three tons in a couple of years on the streets of Europe is very, very difficult. Now, I'm not talking about seizures in ports. I'm yeah. talking the average seizures in houses or seizures in warehouses. It's very, very difficult. If you get five or six tons out on a vessel, and that's worth, you know, that's worth several years seizures by European police forces. So that's... The scale of it there, it's incredible when you frame it yeah, like that. The yeah, scale, the scale and the value. Yeah. That's, and that's, so then you, you know that your way of doing business is working if you're getting seizures. Yeah. Because it works. And I heard you say before in another interview that organized crime gangs have to be lucky all the time, whereas law enforcement, kind of, you almost just need to be lucky once sometimes. But I also heard you say more recently that idea of the game is changing, that even by the time you identify these vessels, they're damaging to the extent that it kind of can't be seized. So it shows the level of... Uh, the level of intent, but also I suppose the fear in the people who are on that boat that they're willing to risk that, knowing that that's kind of the option that they that's been laid on the table for them from where they set sail. Yeah, there's it, there's been recent developments insofar as um, organised criminals using vessels crossing the Atlantic. They've taken a number of different newer routes, and when they were in the going to be intercepted. They have exploded the vessels before the boarding party boarded the vessels. So they jump overboard and blow the vessel up. The reasons for that is to try and conceal the evidence and try and minimize the prosecution case against them. Needless to say, it's, 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 it's hugely dangerous for the people who do the heavy lifting, for the people who go out at the dead of night and try to board ships in all sorts of weather uh, against all sorts of... Um, in all sorts of dangerous conditions. They keep changing tack to see what works best. And if, if, you, if they can explode a vessel or steer it in a different route, they will do that. They will keep figuring out what works best for them, what gives them the greatest chance of success. 
and they stick with that plan. And our aim is to disrupt um, their routes and to disrupt their supply and to prevent them getting into Europe. Michael, looking back through all your work at Mayock, now, what have been some of your biggest insights so far since you started some of these uh, operations? I suppose from a global perspective, to see the influence of organized crime, to see how they've joined up. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you wouldn't get criminals teaming up with, you wouldn't get Irish criminals teaming up with Colombians and Brazilians. Half of them wouldn't know where Colombia was. Whereas now you've got them, you know, you've got them closely associated with them, visiting them, working closely with them. The world has be- has become a smaller place. Yeah. And criminals, uh, for a variety of reasons, have gone more international. And it is no big deal to get drugs from one end of the world to the other end of the world. Having contacts with, with criminals, whether they be in Russia, the Ukraine, or South America, or Colombia, Chile, it doesn't matter. The unification of criminal networks and the international way criminals have joined their efforts. So no longer is a guy in Dublin trying to bring in a half ton of of coke. He's teamed up with Dutch, Spanish, French guys to bring in four tons of coke or five tons, sort of on an industrial level. And the profits are bigger and the cost price is lower. And the people in South America are willing to supply that amount. And the challenge is to get it from A to B. And um, that, that's what they do. And they use all sorts of different people from different countries. The vessel could be flying a Panamanian flag. The crew, one of the biggest seizures made of Cape Verde, which is the island of West Africa, was, uh, was the largest maritime seizure ever, which was nine and a half tons, and the entire crew were Ukrainian. So gone are the days that it's a one national criminal group looking out for their own national interests. This isn't even European. These are transnational organized criminal groups. And to see them all join together and language doesn't matter, and culture doesn't matter, and politics don't matter. They keep their eye on the prize, and the prize is to pool the money, to bring in as much as possible. And law enforcement on the other side of the fence have to pool their resources, and they've got to break down those international barriers and work closer with other international groups further afield to establish contacts at a global level to work closer. And Michael, looking at some of the recent reports to, you know, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic, that what could be driving the demand behind the market for these drugs is certain demographic uh, throughout Europe who has more disposable income. They're probably getting at people in their mid-30s and younger. You know, other people talk about the same market is being targeted by cryptocurrencies and Know, different sorts of tech companies as well. You mentioned Africa there. Probably, I think all the international big companies are kind of looking at that as being the emerging market for their legitimate products and services uh, over the next few decades. So, you know, putting all that together, you know, how do you see this playing out in regards to the future of organized crime and also uh, how countries are going to respond and get on top of it? This is completely fueled 
by market forces. There is a disposable income in Europe. The money is there. People are willing, of all ages, of all social um, classes. So we're not talking about some guy in some back lane who's hooked on coke. We're talking about all sorts of people. There's a huge market there. People are turning a blind eye to what lies behind it, to the murder and the mayhem that it takes to get that coke into the country and the damage it does. So it it, it is going to Europe. In fact, there are figures now that there is more coke coming out of South America um, to Europe than there is going to North America because the profits are bigger. If the profits are bigger in another part of the globe, you will see shipments going there. There is indications of shipments heading to South Africa and heading to Australia because of the market in Australia there's a greater uh, there's, a, there's, there's a greater price for cocaine in, in Australia. But it is purely market forces, supply and demand. As regards West Africa, the money isn't in West Africa at the moment for cocaine. The cocaine is going to West Africa. It's going to the coast of West Africa on a route known as the 10 degree highway. It's a 10 degree line of latitude. And it is going there in an effort to avoid the European naval services. And it's trying to get in under the radar, link up around the Gulf of Guinea and come up through the West African coast by sea because they, they feel that it may be less of a chance of being intercepted. So back to what I said, it is, it, it, it is, it is the money that fuels everything. If you look back to the recession, uh, and I worked with the Drugs and Organized Crime Bureau during the, the, during the recession, there was very little coke coming in because the cash wasn't there. And even if they got the coke in, the cash wasn't there for the dealers to bring it in. And the punters hadn't got the cash either. So even if you got coke in, you couldn't sell that much of it because people hadn't got it. So regardless of the pandemic, the only effect the pandemic has had on it, they're operating by, they I mean, the organized crime groups are operating on the principle of don't waste a good crisis. So as soon as March last year kicked in and there were lockdowns and people were distracted and law enforcement were very busy, shipments from South America started to increase. In a period of two days, the, the Spanish intercepted four vessels. That's unheard of. So they increased the flow of drugs to Europe in the hope that the European navies and the law enforcement would be busy in their own backyard uh, trying to fight COVID. And they also thought that maybe the naval service would be more reluctant to intercept vessels that could have COVID, but it didn't stop them. And um, the, the number of seizures have increased. In fact, for the first three months of this year, for all of last year, 23 tonnes of drugs were seized, which is an incredible amount. Up as far as the 1st of May, a total of 19 tonnes have been seized. So I guess by the end of this year, it will far surpass the busiest year, which was last year. So again, it's money. The money is there. And, and people in South America and people in Europe realise that and they're connecting up to get the product to the market. Looking forward then, Michael, what are your hopes for disrupting organised crime in the future? I suppose strategically, it would be a great benefit if some countries were as proactive 
and I'm not talking about European countries, if some country were as, countries were as proactive as some of the European countries. Organized crime tends to find the weakest link and they go to countries where they feel they can do, carry out their business from, with a degree of impunity or certainly in a degree of safety. The reason the organized crime groups, the Irish organized crime groups, aren't in Ireland is because they're under too much pressure. And the reason a lot of them have moved and are moving out of Europe is the combined pressure of law enforcement. If the countries that some of these groups find themselves in were to be more proactive, it would greatly help. It would make the world a smaller place for organized crime operators to ply their trade and have a base. Put simply, um, greater cooperation at a global level is what I'd like to see in the future, which it will be to the benefit of everybody. It means that criminals can't hide under the radar, can't hide in bolt holes where they can't be extradited or can't be intercepted, and they get others to do their work. So that idea of almost making the world a smaller place, it's probably what's allowed these organizations to generate so many profits for so long, but it you know, could also be one of the big, the big steps in kind of bringing them down as well. It's, it's, it's a huge step. It's about the, the law enforcement structures and the structures of other countries, maybe less developed countries. Yeah. And um, they tend to go to those countries to use them as a base which allows them to, to continue. A lot of them, not all of them, have left Europe or find Europe is a challenging place to operate from. Michael, thanks very much for joining me today. It's been abs- okay. absolutely uh, fascinating to, to hear about you know, some of your work over the last 30 years or so. Best luck for everything in the future. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. Hi, Mark here again. Thanks for listening and I really hope you enjoyed our conversation and picked up a few insights from it. Be sure to leave us a rating from where you get your podcasts and even better, share it with a friend who you think will enjoy it. Thanks again and I hope you tune in next week.